And the thing about Dostoevsky that makes him, uh, that makes his vision of human nature so haunting and so uh, captivating is that he knew that human beings were irrational. And even when you know that you're irrational, that doesn't help you be any more rational. He knew that he couldn't win at roulette. If you asked him back in St. Petersburg, is it possible to beat the house? He would have told you no, because you can't. But he kept convincing himself, no, no, no. If I can just be calm and calculated, I can win. Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. This is a conversation I've been wanting to have for a long time, actually. I met Kevin several years ago, and it was a big moment for me. This was the first time I'd ever met a real author. Of course, I said something foolish, and of course, he has no recollection of such foolish behavior. But, uh, but yeah, I'm a huge admirer of, of his book. Uh, it's called the, the Most Dangerous Book, which tells the story behind Ulysses, one of the most controversial manuscripts of all time. And it's got this incredible cast of characters, from people like James Joyce, to Hemingway, to Ezra Pound, Sylvia Beach. Uh, that book, which was his first offering, really drew me into Kevin's style of writing and the way he's able to bring social analysis to bear on literary and intellectual themes. So Kevin Birmingham has a PhD in English from Harvard. He, uh, he actually studied under Luke Menand, whom I've also had on the show, and is one of my all-time favorite authors. But uh, so yeah, in this conversation, I definitely wanted to ask Kevin about Menand's influence, and we get to that a bit toward the end. But uh, he's won numerous awards, including the Penn New England Award and the Truman Capote Award for Literary Criticism. And the occasion for our conversation is the publication of his new book, which came out in November 2021. It is called The Sinner and the Saint, and it tells the story of the creative process and sort of social circumstances behind Dostoevsky's masterpiece, Crime and Punishment. Since it's a Russian novel, the creative process entails a great deal of suffering. Uh, and, and the book also ties in this true story of how Dostoevsky's crime thriller was actually inspired by the real-life crimes of a Frenchman, Pierre-Francois Lassenaire. Uh, I'd like to uh, imagine that all French criminal masterminds are named Pierre-Francois. Of course, uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm a cognitive scientist by training, uh, so I don't... I don't have a lot of background in literary analysis. And so that is for sure one of the reasons why I've enjoyed Kevin's books so much. And, you know, they sort of helped me as a layman to, to understand books and novels, or at least aspects of these books anyway, that I wouldn't otherwise have the tools to grasp. So there's a passage from his book uh, that I really love that I, that I want to read. And uh, it, it, he, he writes, One measure of Dostoevsky's talent is that he could make something as small as a wink turn all the gears in a complex relationship. Porfiry's tiniest movement is either an involuntary twitch or a cunning signal. Either it means nothing or it spells out Raskolnikov's doom. He doesn't know how to read it and he can't even tell if it happened. Raskolnikov wonders if all of his blinks look like winks, if the inspector's eyes always gleam on a horizon between empty sky and unsounded fathoms. Uh, he begins to scrutinize every detail 
the way the instructor positions his body, the tone of his voice, the way he emphasized the word she. In Dostoevsky's murder story, the detective is the mystery. I just love that passage. Uh, at, at any rate, talking to Kevin is <laughs> I mean, it's basically like having a private seminar with your favorite professor. He's able to spin some really great answers, and I'm definitely looking forward to sharing this conversation. Uh, if, if you do enjoy this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you'd consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. You can find it at codycommerce.substack.com. It is the best way to keep up with all my work, as well as with the latest episodes of Cognitive Revolution. And, you know, in my writing there, I try to, like, sort of make a deeper connection between our theoretical understanding of the world, informed by things like cognitive science and psychology, and in this case, even literary criticism, and our on-the-ground experience of life itself. So please consider subscribing. That is codycommerce.substack.com. Thank you for listening, and without any further ado, here is Kevin Birmingham. Anyway, um, let's talk about Dostoevsky. So I guess kind of where I want to start is I just want to hear your backstory on how did you fall in love with Dostoevsky to the extent that you wanted to spend all this time with him and his work and the process that you know, sort of brought it into being? Well, uh, I'll have a short answer to the first part of your question before turning in a different direction. I've, I first discovered Dostoevsky somewhat late. I think I was in grad school, probably my first or second year in grad school. And it wasn't assigned to me. I was just reading it, uh, reading Crime and Punishment during the summer. Uh, though actually, to be honest, I probably discovered Dostoevsky before that by reading um, Notes from Underground, which uh, really stayed with me for a while, partly because if you read Notes from Underground, it's a completely mad book. It's very small. It's slender. It's, it's a novella, probably about 80 to 90 pages. But the first 30 to 40 pages are really just a voice speaking. And there's something... Um, uh, bewitching about that voice that really stays with you once you, you read it. And it was clear that Dostoevsky was experimenting with voices and was trying to see how far he could go with a story that had no plot whatsoever, that was really just a voice talking. And it's remarkable to read it. And it was utterly strange at the time. There wasn't a single review of Notes from Underground written after Notes from Underground came out. And uh, that experiment, I think, well, first it became a dry run for crime and punishment. And so it's important for Dostoevsky's career. But it uh, also became, I think, an important moment in the history of the novel. And it ended up leading toward a lot of the modernist experimentations that we see with, with voices and with the representation of consciousness in the early 20th century. Um, but what inspired me about Dostoevsky to, to write The Sinner and the Saint, which is my book that's, that's just come out this past November, it was the 200th anniversary of Dostoevsky's birth this past November. So my book, The Sinner and the Saint, came out um, uh, to coincide with, with that. To be honest, uh, it's not just an author that inspires me to write a book. It has to be an author and a story surrounding an author. So The Sinner and the Saint is about 
the story of Dostoevsky first becoming a writer as a young man and all the trials and tribulations that went into that, including being arrested by the czar and the czar's men before dawn one morning, going through a mock execution, he thought he was gonna die, uh, being sentenced to Siberia, um, living with convicts, with murderers uh, for years in a hard labor prison camp, coming back to St. Petersburg 10 years later and restarting his career and embarking upon the greatest decade of his life in the wake of, of being uh, in exile, suffering from uh, temporal lobe epilepsy, suffering from gambling addiction, uh, being in chronic debt, and developing his voice as a writer, developing his interest in crime, his interest in murder. It's that story, as well as the story of Pierre-Francois Lassenier, who uh, uh, was the partial inspiration for Raskolnikov and Crime and Punishment, who had his own extraordinary career and who tried to immortalize his own life in his own memoirs that were written in the weeks between his trial and his execution, his beheading in uh, uh, in Paris. So uh, for me, Dostoevsky always had an incredible life, but uh, there was no real way for me to get into his life in a new way, I felt, until I realized that Crime and Punishment was based partly upon this murderer, Lassenaer, and that Lassenaer had written his own memoirs, and that there was enough written about the trial at the time to create a two-part story. Um, the trial was a sensation in Paris. It was covered by all of the press. Crowds of people were thronging into the courtroom to uh, witness what was happening. Lassenaire recounted his deeds very casually and um, with a plum, you might even say. And uh, uh, this two-part story, I thought, became captivating. I thought there was a way for us to tell a story about Dostoevsky as a writer, and for us to get insight into his creative process, his creativity and his own mind in a way that other people hadn't done before. I don't like writing A to Z biographies. I don't start with birth and then end with someone's death. What I like to do is to take a chunk out of someone's life. And because it's a narrower portion of someone's life, I can go deeper. I have, I have the opportunity to retell a story novelistically, to focus on details, and to see how specific events start to uh, form a, a, a narrative arc that is hopefully both enlightening and, and satisfying. Yeah, I love it. And man, what a, what a book. Both this and your previous book. Huge fan of both of them. Um, you did say, you know, Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky suffered from gambling addiction. I will say he won a lot of money though, so maybe suffering and succeeded, but uh, that definitely, that, that side of him I, I think comes out, like even even the book itself was a gamble, that it's like, I'm going to bet all my money that, uh, or you know, my, my, you know, what was it, a decade's worth of, of future work, uh, that I'm going to get this manuscript done in time, and uh, that was a big part of, of getting it done on the timeline that it got done, right? Yeah, I mean, he. there were a couple of moments when, he won, you know, tens of thousands of francs. And those winnings were the worst thing that could have happened to him because uh, he kept revisiting in his mind those moments of victory and kept going back to the casinos over and over again and kept losing. And 
the problem with gambling addiction is that you keep thinking, you know, just one more spin of the roulette wheel and roulette was the, the game that he was addicted to one more spin of the roulette wheel and I'll be a huge winner. And then when you do win, you think, okay, just one more and I'll win even more. Or, you know, I was up 5,000 francs an hour ago. If I can just get back to that level, I'll quit. And, you know, the moment where you walk away from the table is always just a couple of spins away. And the truth is that Dostoevsky would walk into the casino, he would bet everything in his coat pocket, and then he would pawn his coat. And then he would pawn his watch. And then he would pawn, you know, his wedding ring. And everything that he had, he would pawn. And then he would start writing people, asking them for money. Please, I need money to get home. And then, you know, later on when he was married, uh, his wife would send him money to get back home. And instead of going back home, he would go back to the casino and gamble that. So he was very much aware that um, he was helpless, and the thing about Dostoevsky that makes him, uh, uh, that makes his vision of human nature so um, haunting and so uh, uh, captivating is that he knew that human beings were irrational. And even when you know that you're irrational, that doesn't help you be any more rational. He knew that he couldn't win at roulette. If you asked him back in St. Petersburg, is it possible to beat the house? He would have told you no, because you can't, right? The house, you know, zero always belongs to the house if you're playing, if you're if you're playing roulette. So the odds are always, you know, about fifty-one percent in the house's favor. Um, but he kept convincing himself, no, no, no. If I can just be calm and calculated, I can win. But Dostoevsky was anything but calm. He was. Uh, uh, Impetuous, he was uh, driven by uh, his own desires and by um, by the the adrenaline rush and by the fear uh, of losing. He was driven by guilt, and knowing all that didn't help him become any better of a person. And he sort of takes some of these insights and, and plants them uh, into his own characters, who think that they can, you know reason their way towards goodness, right? Raskolnikov is someone who goes wrong because he thinks he can will his way towards a better world and towards uh, morality instead of feeling his way towards morality. Uh, so that's part of the, the warning of, of crime and punishment is the warning of trying to, um, to be good from the top down rather than from the bottom up. One of the things that you mentioned is that in order for you to tackle a story, it has to not just be a biography of an incredible individual or, you know, some notable figure, but like you said, this broader picture where something is going on, where there's an almost sociological process at, at which, you know, is what brings us the, the, the artistic work that we're, that is under discussion. So what was the moment for you where you realized, oh, wait, there's an untold story here. Because, I mean, like you said, Dostoevsky's been around for 250 years. He was appreciated in his own time, especially early on as like, oh, wow, here's someone with a bunch of potential. So we've, you know, a lot has been written about his his books and, and what, what he's got on there. So to, to have something unique to say is sort of like, okay, wow, here's a, here's a big thing. When did you stumble upon that? And what was the thing that made you realize, oh, wow, there's actually this whole thing that I want to explore in this new light. Well, there were 
there were a couple of, of things that made me think, you know, this could really work as a book. The first was, you know, seeing that Lassenaire had written his own memoirs. So we had his own voice. And the, the voice was an interesting one, not only because Lassenaire was a celebrity. Like, that's one of the things that appalled Dostoevsky when he read about this, this crime spree uh, in 1861. What appalled him was that presumably Paris should be uh, outraged that someone uh, would kill a man and his widowed mother, which is what Lassenaire and an accomplice did, with an axe and with a three-sided file. It was a sharpened file that was used for, um, you know, for sharpening blades or something like that. And uh, they were killed in cold blood for a very small amount of money. And that small amount of money was supposed to be used turned around for a larger bank robbery scheme. And the bank robbery scheme didn't involve storming the vaults. It meant luring the collection clerks of banks into apartments that were rented and outfitted for the purpose of, uh, you know, getting the clerks there so that they could kill them and take what, whatever was in their satchels. It was, you know, mostly banknotes, but also cash. Lassenaire became something like um, uh, a hero for some people, partly because he was uh, a handsome man, partly because he was well-educated, because he was debonair, because he was eloquent. He did not look or behave the way a criminal was supposed to behave. This was the time when criminology was just starting to uh, be developed in, uh, in France in particular. And the notion that there were dangerous classes, quote unquote, uh, people that uh, looked a certain way, uh, that were physiologically a certain way, that had a certain uh, lack of education, lack of intelligence, those were who criminals were supposed to be. Lassenaire's trial was a vision of a new type of criminal who seemed to be bourgeois who seemed to be completely different, someone who wrote poetry, someone who was published, right? Someone who, like Raskolnikov, had literary pretensions and uh, who was smart. And he thought that the world was against him because his family had lost its fortune before he was able to inherit it. And that sense of uh, resentment carried over into everything that he did. Um, so, uh, the memoirs that he wrote, he tries to tell the world and sells this vision of himself as someone who is basically a Robin Hood figure, someone who is stealing from the rich in order to you know, give to the poor. So his notion of what he was doing was saying, you know, this is an unjust society, uh, a society of uh, inequality, a society where the poor are suffering constantly and the wealthy are getting wealthier and uh, I am going to attack it directly. Uh, he's One of the lines that he wrote in his memoirs was, uh, you know, I come to preach the religion of fear to the wealthy because the religion of love has no power over their hearts. His idea was that he was going to take an ax to the banks and he was going to uh, basically be a part of a one-man uh, revolution. And that revolution was going to change uh, French society. Dostoevsky, when he read this, understood very clearly that 
here was a man who claims to kill for ideological purposes, but at the heart of it, just kills in order to kill. Kills for very base purposes, maybe for money, but partly because he doesn't care about human life in general. That is what he took and placed into Raskolnikov. Now, Raskolnikov, for those of your listeners who have read Crime and Punishment, we know that Raskolnikov is the murderer. He has his axe uh, in uh, part one and kills a pawnbroker, not a bank, uh, not a banker, but a pawnbroker, so somewhat similar. A pawnbroker and her sister at the end of part one. So it's not a murder mystery, it's a thriller. We know who the murderer is, and the drama of the novel is trying to figure out whether or not he's going to get captured and why he did it in the first place. As the novel progresses, he keeps offering different motives for why he would have done it. For example, it was potentially a utilitarian murder, that he was killing a pawnbroker, someone who exploits the poor, in order to take her money and then do something good with it, you know, give back to the poor in some way. The benevolent career that Raskolnikov imagines for himself is deliberately vague. It's never spelled out in the novel because he, the truth is that he never actually cares about it. But there are multiple philosophical justifications for the murder, and we don't get to the truth until a very small moment towards the end of the book when he confesses to his love interest, I did it just to whisk it all away, just to take everything by the tail and whisk it off to the devil, as he puts it, just to, to destroy things, right? That at the, at the heart of all of this is not a grand philosophical vision. If you think Raskolnikov kills for philosophical purposes, then Raskolnikov has fooled you. He's, he's escaped uh, your apprehension. He does it because there is buried in maybe all of us, at least a lot of us, a uh, destructive impulse. And it's partly a self-destructive impulse. And it's this destructive impulse that captivated Dostoevsky and that he thought was at the heart of the nihilists of his own time, as the young radicals called themselves in the 1860s in St. Petersburg. He thought that, you know, a lot of these people really want to change the world and there's something good about that, but beneath it is the pleasure of wiping everything away, just destroying the ruling class, destroying the czars, destroying the past, destroying tradition, and there was a pleasure uh, in that. And that's what Dostoevsky was trying to capture. So I want to ask about his ability to render some of those things that you're talking about. Uh, so basically, asking about him as a writer and as a genius is pretty much everyone who studies him agrees that he is. Uh, so what is it that really makes him such a monumental figure of incisiveness? Uh, and I guess what I mean by that is that like often, you know, people, when I ask them this or when I'm like checking out secondary literature, of course, for, for laymen, not for actual scholars, cause I'm not a scholar of literature. Uh, but you know, like people will say something like, well, okay, you know, and then they'll give some sort of uh, plot summary or they'll say, well, you know, he, he articulated this worldview, but I'm, I'm wondering about like his ability to render those things, to make real, like, what is it that makes a work like Crime and Punishment and what he was able to do? Yeah. What, what, what yeah. am I, what am I missing there? I mean, there's, you know, there, there's an intimacy to the voice. We talked earlier about, you know, or I mentioned earlier the voice that's in Notes from Underground 
and that this is a monologue effectively it, it almost sounds like a stream of consciousness this sort of voice talking into itself and it's a, a voice in isolation and there's you know it's almost like being stuck in a room with someone and we're getting to see just the inner workings uh of just one person uh, this is a forerunner to sort of stream of consciousness and how, you know, artists would, especially novelists, would end up trying to render stream of consciousness. Dostoevsky started to use those insights into how to render a specific voice with Raskolnikov and Crime and Punishment, but not doing it from the first person perspective. So his initial ideas for Crime and Punishment, and the novel changed a lot under his hands. You know, the whole creative process for writing is one of the things that interests me and one of the ways, one of the reasons why I wrote the book, by the way. So, you know, the, the second big thing that I thought was important for me in terms of writing this book was, it wasn't just Rossinier's memoirs, but it was also the notebooks for Crime and Punishment. The fact that those notebooks are still around and still exist, and that we can look at them and see all the different versions of Crime and Punishment as it was, was developing under his hand, that I thought was, was uh, uh, central to the drama of, of my book, central to the drama of Dostoevsky's uh, incredible creativity. And one of the things that I thought would be really rewarding for, for readers to see. But Dostoevsky originally thought of it as being a first-person narrative, that you know he would either be writing it as a diary or Raskolnikov would be on a witness stand and just telling people in plain language the details of a crime that he committed you know, months or years earlier. He decided it's not really possible to do that, that in order for us to really be in the room with the murderer as it's happening, and that was crucial for him, he really wanted us to be experiencing the things that a murderer experiences, going to places that we don't normally want to go, experiencing a murderer from the murderer's perspective. In order for that to happen, we have to be peering over the murderer's shoulder and we need to have a, just a slight amount of distance from him. And, you know, peering over someone's shoulder is not exactly the same as being inside that person's shoes. And the slight distance uh, allows a certain, um, in a way, actually makes it closer, makes us feel even closer to the events that are happening, both because we're seeing it from his perspective and simultaneously seeing what's happening in the outside world. And it's a little bit difficult to describe, but there's a way in which uh, crime and punishment is very good at uh, weaving subjective impressions into a world of uh, objective facts. And the coincidence of these two realms is crucial for the overarching drama of crime and punishment because it, the the novel itself is a problem about objective facts and subjective um, interpretations of those facts. We have an inspector, and the it ends up being one of the most famous inspectors in uh, in literature, Porfiry Petrovich. The problem that the inspector has is that his job is to piece together facts from the material external world, and he goes looking for those facts but doesn't find any. What Dostoevsky wants to create is an investigation in which there are no material facts. As hard as Petrovich looks, he can't find anything, not a shred 
of information, but he knows that Raskolnikov did it, all based on his intuition. And so the drama is about trying to pull out a confession from Raskolnikov, trying to get just the subjective experience of this murder out into the world of facts once again. And he can't do it with any of the evidence that he has because he doesn't have any evidence. Uh, but Raskolnikov is this sort of, um, you know, this, this welter of confusion and fever dreams and hallucinations. And Petrovich has to sort of, has to, has to join these two worlds. And uh, in the end, that's what he does. It's probably not going to, to be a, a spoiler for, for your listeners, but Raskolnikov does confess. And so, you know, the truth does out, uh, so to speak. But it's not done through the normal um, deduction that's made through, through material um, investigation. So do you think there was a connection between this relentless editorial process that Dostoevsky went through in, in Crime and Punishment and this immense empathy that you're describing for being able to bring out a voice or a perspective and that sort of stuff. Was there a kind of whittling away, getting closer and closer towards something that resembled that kind of... Do you think there's a link there between... Uh, yeah, between all uh, that? I, 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 you know, I think he's... Uh, th- there were a few different problems practical problems that Dostoevsky had to solve. And there were a few things that he was becoming bolder with as time went on. The most important thing that he was becoming uh, bold about was getting closer and closer to the murder itself. And you can see this happening in his notebooks where he initially thinks of the page one of the action beginning years after the crime takes place. And we never actually, you know, experience the murder. We sort of see it in this forensic, you know, flash. Like there will be like a a brief moment of spilled blood that someone just happens to mention or people are talking about. We're always two or three steps removed from this act of violence. And as Dostoevsky started to go on, he started to get closer and closer to narrating it until he decided he was just going to do it, that he was just going to moment by moment, give us Raskolnikov walking down the street in his top hat and his large coat, and there's an axe inside of his coat, and we can feel the weight of the axe as he's holding it through his coat, and we can feel him muscle his way into the into the apartment, and we can watch him as he watches the old woman with her skinny neck and her twiggy legs, and feel the fear that he feels just as he's about to pull the the axe out and the the gruesomeness of the axe and what it's like to uh, try to scrub blood from underneath your fingernails all of these little um details are things that Dostoevsky was he had a a morbid and relentless imagination and he kept needing to get closer and closer to things that he didn't want to think about. And it all stems, I think, uh, well, it's hard to figure out where all this begins, but he cultivated that in, in, uh, in Siberia because he was imprisoned with a lot of criminals, a lot of people who actually were, were murderers. And he was captivated by their stories and had to hear why they did it, why they would do such a thing what it was like to kill someone, 
what did it feel like to kill someone? All of these questions that are a bit unseemly and maybe inappropriate. And he felt the need to experience things that were forbidden and to try to capture that on the page. And I'm not sure if it's, if it's empathy or just um, a desire to see how much work that uh, a novel could do or a desire to see how awful human nature can be. I think to some degree he was exploring an element of himself. I think that he had violent impulses himself, though of course he was always able to, to contain it. Um, but he was exploring it partly because he thought he was exploring something that was relatively common because his conclusion, you know, murderers, were, there are a thousand different motives for a thousand different murders, but he thought that beneath all of it was this compulsive urge to feel free for just a moment. And he explained it in his memoir, Notes from a Dead House, which is his memoir about uh, 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 living uh, in a Siberian prison labor camp. Uh, he described it in a few different ways, and one of the ways is is the freedom you feel when you leap off of a tall building. You know you're going to die. It's an awful thing to do. But for just a split second, you feel weightless. And, you know, all of the burdens of the world just get released. And there's a small sense of joy in that. And he suspected or really knew that there were some people who would throw everything away just for this small sense of freedom and power and that some people express that power that sense of freedom in in murder as awful as it was even if they knew that the uh the justice would come crashing down and that their lives would probably be ruined after the fact hey cody here so as i've mentioned on the show before i am graduating from my phd program pretty soon here hopefully in spring 2022. And while that's great, it also means I have to start making plans for my next phase. And ideally, I'd like to do this. I'd like to podcast and write and be able to achieve at least a semblance of what looks like a next career step producing this kind of work. So it is time for me to take the pod from something that merely exists to the next level. And part of what this entails is that I am going to be offering a premium subscription to my podcasts and writing. So one of the questions that I've been asking myself recently is, what have I learned from doing this podcast and how has it affected me personally? And so I am starting a segment called CogRev Redux, in which I listen back to my catalog of episodes starting from my first interview over two years ago, and I edit down the original to a 30-minute show featuring the highlights of what that guest said and, and what really stuck with me over that time, as well as my own reflections on where I was when the interview was conducted, what I was interested in, and how that's all changed. 
and I will also go into any backstory I have with the guest or strange behind-the-scenes antics that happened during the taping that didn't make the final cut. So I will offer two free CogRev Redux episodes in January. Then from there, they will come out for premium subscribers every other week. With the premium subscription, you also get my series called Reviewed. It's Reviewed in which I revisit, reread, or reconsider the books, movies, podcasts, or other content that has most impacted me throughout the years. In this show, I love to ask people about the books that have most influenced their thinking, and so now I want to explore my own answers to those questions in greater depth. There's also a new series I'm launching called The Grad Student's Guide to Podcasting. It features everything I've learned while doing Cognitive Revolution through my PhD, as well as interviews with other graduate student podcasters. That will be coming out throughout January 2022. Anyway, like I said, this is part of me building out toward my next phase, so I really do appreciate the support. If you are interested in signing up for a subscription, you can check out codycommerce.substack.com. That's codycommerce.substack.com. Even if you just sign up for the free version, it helps a ton to support my future work. Okay, thank you for hearing me out. Now, back to the show. So I want to bring in your previous book, The Most Dangerous Book, uh, which was about the publication of James Joyce Ulysses, um, which is one of the most you know convoluted, controversial paths to publication that any book has ever faced. And, um, I guess, uh, I'd like, to, I'm just sort of curious to know, like, what was the difference in composition between these two works? Cause they're kind of like, you know, they, they are, they have similarities in that they are looking at the larger social and personal processes that go into forming a work or bringing it to markets, but yet they're so different in what those relevant processes were. So how has this project, um, been, been different for you from that first one? Well, I think with, um, uh, the Sinner and the Saint is, you know, the. I like to think in terms of like the size of the canvas. Uh, the Sinner and the Saint is narrower and deeper. I'm spending a lot of time with Dostoevsky in particular, and not not as much time, but a, also a substantial amount of time with this murderer, Pierre-Francois Lassenier. With uh, uh, the most dangerous book, you know, the... Ulysses becomes a nexus for a really wide range of characters. And uh, the, the tapestry is a little bit wider. And because it's a little bit wider, it's not quite as deep. Um, every author has to choose between, like, you know, how those dimensions are going to work. Like, the, the wider your, your scope is, the, the less deep you can be. The, the narrower it is, the deeper you can go. Just because you can't hold someone's attention for a thousand pages. You know, for both of those books, uh, I ended up writing probably about, uh, I think the, the first drafts for both of them were about 165,000 words. And um, in both cases, they got trimmed down to about uh, 110,000 words, which ends up being about, you know, 350 pages. Uh, so there's a lot of material that was just, was just cut out and just like trimmed down, um, in order to make the, the, the shape of the stories work. Um, but 
in the most dangerous book, you know, the idea is to follow not just James Joyce and the people who are friends with James Joyce, but it's also the people who wanted uh, literature banned and literature burned. And it's about lawyers who were trying to legalize uh, uh, books in the early 20th century in the United States. And it's about judges who were trying to uh, figure out how to balance uh, public interests versus uh, social norms. Uh, it's about publishers. And so the world that takes place in the most dangerous book uh, is a little bit wider. And because it's a little bit wider, uh, we don't get you know quite as close to Joyce, I don't think, as as we can get to Dostoevsky, partly because I can spend uh, more time with him. But we get a snapshot or you know a rendition of what early 20th century transatlantic culture is like from you know 1915 to about 1930 um, in the most dangerous book and in crime and punishment we're you know delving into czarist russia so it's a very different place to be and there are a lot of basic elements about russian culture that need to be described and talked about to u.s readers because they're just not aware of um you know, for example, there's no real capital punishment in Russia. Basically, everyone, if you were uh, convicted of a crime, and convicted is a very loose term to use, but if you were a criminal, you were sent to Siberia. And just how Siberia worked is completely foreign to modern readers. How prison works in the United States is people more or less know. So I don't need to spend too much time talking about that. So... The way that you choose backgrounds uh, are different. Uh, the archives are very different. You know, everyone who's writing nonfiction has to work within the archive that they have. So if there is a deep archive for um, Morris Ernst, for example, who was um, the uh, the lawyer who who helped legalize Ulysses, has, you know, probably about 165 boxes of materials in, uh, in the University of Texas at Austin. And uh, that's, you know, a treasure trove of information. So you can only go where, um, where there's evidence for you to go. Um, I suppose you could start making things up if you want, but... Um, uh, we'll save that every for the project podcasting, you know? Yeah, right. Well, no, I think uh, I look. I think it's there are a lot of good books that are, um, as long as they are clear about when they're speculating and are speculating for fun, and they these don't take their own speculation too seriously. I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think speculative criticism and speculative stories can be good. It's weird to to straddle that line. Um, but it's all part of the experimentation. And I think you have an implicit contract with the reader. We say to your readers, you know, I'm just letting you know what I'm doing. Uh, and you can just decide for yourself what you want to do. For my readers, I'm, I do it the old-fashioned way, which is that I'm doing my very best, given all the information that we have available, to get as close to the truth as possible. And um, if I don't have... Uh, a way to get there, then I won't talk about it or I can't talk about it. So, so there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of silences. There are a lot of like black holes, things that, that can't be looked at. And, uh, you know, almost every story is, or I should say every story is defined partly by what it doesn't talk about. 
Another tension that stands out to me in contrasting the two books is that in getting closer to Dostoevsky and that specific narrative thread, it sort of gave you more narrative and less historicism in a way. Um, maybe you disagree with that characterization, but it seemed to me that, um, uh, you know, in uh, the most dangerous book, a lot of it, uh, it was, it was, it was much, it was much more willing to go into the interpretation and be like, and this is sort of the, the way to think about what happened. Whereas it's much harder to say with any certainty because it's just the life of an individual, what happened with the, 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 the Dostoevsky, uh, you know, s different parts of the story there. I'm not entirely sure, uh, how to answer that. I think, uh, I, I think for both of my books, I'm, doing what I can to um, to get the importance of a book across uh, without getting in the way too much for readers to see it for themselves. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be obtrusive as a writer, certainly don't want to be obtrusive as a critic or someone who's trying to interpret for you. There's a little bit more of crime and punishment itself in uh, The Sinner and the Saint than there is... Ulysses in the most dangerous book. And that's for a few different reasons. One is because, you know, the Ulysses is a very complex novel and it's not easy to, to talk about it um, in a somewhat succinct way. For, uh, for Crime and Punishment, you know, the drama of what goes on in Crime and Punishment itself becomes reflective of and reflected in the story surrounding it. And so I hope readers end up seeing that there are, you know, layers of storytelling happening and those layers in a way depend upon one another or uh, are affected or influenced by one another, um, you know, potentially from the inside out. And the, you know, the salient details of Ulysses happen to be those details that landed in court, right? The things that were obscene. And, you know, there isn't too much action in Ulysses. And so the, the plot to Ulysses itself, so much as, as there is a plot, uh, was not central for me to, to prize apart. But um, what Raskolnikov actually does on, you know, a few fateful days, and maybe we could say, uh, you know, a couple of weeks, and some encounters that he has with um, an inspector, those do become... Uh, very important and something that I need to be able to describe in some amount of detail. And, you know, the murder scene itself is something I've never actually done before, but, you know, I'm effectively rewriting that scene moment by moment. And it felt like doing a sort of adaptation, you know, the way that, you know, if you're making a movie of a book, you're trying to be faithful to it, but you're also necessarily changing it. And um, I was effectively doing the same thing, um, uh, with, with this important scene in crime and punishment. Yeah. So I had another question about the construction of your text. So it, you were sort of talking about the differences between the nature of the story of crime and punishment and the nature of the story of Ulysses. One is much more compact, compact, representable in a, in a compact way, uh, crime and punishment, whereas one's much more diffuse. And in a sense, this seems like it's kind of mirrored in your own rendering of your books, that you are trying to pick up on key, you know, thematic or, you know, kind of elements of the source material, whatever the sort of central thing you're, you're, you're looking at is, and bringing that out in its own way in your, in your book. So, for example, early on, 
you talk about how one of the crucial parts of crime and punishment is the detail in which Dostoevsky was able to bring bring in. So you like to talk about the weight of the axe and the coat and all that sort of stuff. And your book is like, it's clearly something that you are bringing out in your own text is, you know, for example, you describe the cascade of neurological signals that's happening in one of his epileptic episodes. And by contrast in... Uh, James, the you know most dangerous book, uh, like you're saying, it's the novel itself is more diffuse. Therefore, the, my rendering of it is going to incorporate lots of things and not just be this one thread uh, that takes you from start to finish in this very linear way. So I'm curious to know how do you start to put that into your writing and and like how do you start to conceptualize that? That's a very impressive and high level thing in 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 your writing that I'm curious about. You know, for I, I don't know. Stories have a way of taking you wherever they they want to go, uh, and I don't necessarily know what I'm going to be talking very much about, or what I will be talking very much about. And I'll have a plan for for saying X, Y, and Z, but then it turns out that X is three times as big as I thought it was going to be, and Z isn't something that I need to talk about at all. So you mentioned epilepsy. Uh, I knew that I was going to be talking about epilepsy to some degree or another, partly because it's crucial to Dostoevsky's life. He had temporal lobe seizures uh, for decades, and it ended up affecting the way he thought. It ended up affecting the way he behaved, the way he wrote. It was very, very difficult for him to write over time. The um, interictal period, the time between seizures for him was getting um, more and more challenging. He had what he called like a a fog in his brain. He would get depressed. Um, And so, you know, I knew that anything that was a part of Dostoevsky's creativity and a a part of the drama of his writing life was something that I'd be talking about. But it wasn't until I started to investigate temporal lobe seizures themselves and what we now know about temporal lobe seizures that I knew that I would start saying more and more about it. And I ended up going down a little bit of a research rabbit hole with with some of this uh, research, partly because so much has happened in this field in the past 10 years or so. So we know a lot more about the effects of temporal lobe seizures and what causes them uh, today than we did, let's say, 10 or 15 years ago. So there's a, a massive biography of Dostoevsky by Joseph Frank. It's about, you know, it's over 2,000 pages long. But when he was writing, he was finishing it in the in the 90s. Uh, we still didn't know too much about epilepsy, and so he couldn't speak with uh, any degree of detail about what those seizures were like and how they affected Dostoevsky's writing. We can start to do that now. We could do that a little bit more and we can um, use what we know about uh, epilepsy now to give us insight into Dostoevsky's life. And I thought this is a great opportunity for, uh, for me to do that. And one thing that we know now that we didn't know then is that there's a relationship between temporal lobe epilepsy and uh, obsessive compulsive behaviors. Uh, so it's possible, though not necessarily the case, but possible that Dostoevsky's gambling addiction was brought about by his seizures. Um, that, you know, the the temporal lobe becomes overactive in certain ways. There's actually a syndrome called Geschwind syndrome 
that uh, you know Dostoevsky was a diagnostic model for this syndrome. The Kishvins identified it in the 1970s. And there are a lot of things that you can see in Dostoevsky's life that people with Gishvin syndrome have. They become overly interested in uh, religious or philosophical ideas. They become ridden with guilt. They um, uh, can, can feel the presence of God uh, quite a bit. They can develop hypergraphia, like writing compulsively. I don't think Dostoevsky had hypergraphia, but uh, certainly <laughs> suggestive. Um, and uh, so epilepsy began to open up as a topic for me, partly because of what was there and because of what is is knowable and applicable to to his life. I wouldn't have guessed that before. Um, Siberia as a place opened up for me way, probably way too much. I spent so much time researching Siberia because to me it was such a fascinating place, and I didn't expect it. Um, to be that rich of a subject for me, but uh, but it was. I I want to ask you about um, an author who I admire very much, who I believe was your PhD advisor, uh, Luke Nand. And uh, I'm just curious, you know, since I'm such a huge admirer of his books, and I can see you know his imprint on you in in certain ways, or at least you know there are points of connection there. So how did your experience with him, you know, particularly during your, your PhD and in any other, you know, whatever your biggest point of connection was with him, how did that sort of affect your voice and your skills and the way you approach your craft as, as an author? Uh, th that's a good question. You know, it probably, I think with any influence, it probably uh, shaped it in ways that I'm not even fully conscious of. Uh, I think certainly... I was able to see through him how you could uh, distill a lot into a small amount of space that you do not need to write for pages and pages about something that's complicated in order to do justice to that complicated thing. So learning concision without ever becoming glib and without ever becoming reductive, that was a huge takeaway and I was able to learn it both in his books and in his uh, in his essays for the New Yorker he wrote uh, a, a review of a uh, of a biography of James Joyce and uh, I read it and I was actually able to see more clearly then than ever before how he was doing things partly because I knew the material so well and I could see how he was condensing large amounts of material in a way that was uh, that was satisfying, without um, without doing any injustice to to the subject matter. Um, I think, in general, um, grad school, <laughs> you know, it, it was a weird ride for me. Grad school, I think, but um, among the things I think. I learned in grad school, among the few things I think I learned in grad school that, that, <laughs> that worked out really well for me is, is treating, imagining your audience as someone who's smarter than you are, but who doesn't happen to know very much about your subject. Where if you're a really good writer and you know a lot about your subject, I think the impulse is to talk down to your readers and it's very easy to see it's very easy for me now at any rate to see when 
writers are writing down to their audience, where they imagine their audience just not being very smart. And the best writing treats the audience as being very, very smart. And I always imagine the people who are reading my books as being smarter than I am and being more capable than me and being faster than I am. And so when I'm revising, I can see how the audience, how I realize, oh, you know, I'm, I don't need to do that. My audience can already get it more quickly. And like, I've already given them enough information to get this and I'm stripping away a lot of the things that in a way I needed for myself, but that my audience doesn't need. And that was an important thing to learn. And, you know, I don't think it's taught enough in grad school. I think a lot of graduate students and a lot of academics come away with the opposite, um, with the opposite conclusion. And I think a lot of academics are very bad at writing for popular audiences because they think of themselves as talking down to people who are not experts and who are not as smart as they are. And I think that's a huge mistake. Very fascinating. Uh, so uh, there's tons of stuff that I would love to continue to ask you about, but I will uh, let you go off this one last question. What are three books that have most impacted you? Uh, three books that have um, most most impacted me. Um, and you can't choose Crime and Punishment. Or yeah, I know. I know. That's the easy way to the easy answer is Crime and Punishment and Ulysses, uh, and they certainly have. Um, I think. Uh, I'm going to give you one book that I think is is the obvious is an obvious choice for me, partly because it very literally changed the trajectory of my um, not only of my writing but of my research in grad school, uh, and that uh, was uh, James Baldwin's uh, Notes of a Native Son. And I wasn't expecting to write about James Baldwin at all as a grad student or in my dissertation. And I I wrote uh, I read. Uh, Notes of the Native Son, I think it was just, I don't know, it was on a, a holiday break or something. There was no particular reason for me reading it. And uh, it's, it, James Baldwin taught me how to, uh, he taught me how stories can be arguments, how they can be persuasive in ways that no one else really had at the time. And he showed me the power of the nonfiction form in a way that I don't think I quite saw before. And I don't know why I didn't see it before, but, you know, Notes of a Native Son in particular, that that particular essay uh, was just so powerful. And he had such a, um, a fluid yet deliberate way of writing that was captivating for me. And I remember trying to write about him and thinking it's almost impossible to quote James Baldwin because every time I try to take a, a piece of his prose out, it feels painful to do it. It's very difficult to cut something out of a James Baldwin paragraph or page and place it somewhere else and have it have the same effect. It's that um, integrated. And so just well done and so deeply felt and carefully thought out that the incredible balance of feeling and thoughtfulness driven by a sense of purpose was was an important moment for me and uh, you know I ended up spending you know a couple of years of my life just engrossed in James Baldwin because of it and I think um, I think I owe him a huge debt uh, because of because of his work. Fantastic answer, and I will let you off the hook for two other books if you give a bonus uh, answer, which is uh, 
what is your favorite uh, world historical literary tradition? So, if, you know, you've studied modernism, you've studied, you know, Russian literature now. Uh, pick pick one. <laughs> world historical literary tradition. Um Jeez, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess I'd have to say modernism, partly because there there's so many cranks, and it's fun to have a carnival of of people around. You know, the Dadaists or uh, the Surrealists. Just seeing photo. I saw a photograph recently of just a bunch of modernists together, and just seeing this wild bunch of people who almost had nothing in common other than the desire to strike out, um, strike out in the world, not strike out from you know a baseball game, uh, is. It was just, I don't know, great fun. And, uh, you know, the the great Russian novelists uh, were powerful. I don't know if they had nearly as much fun. Mm. It was not easy being a Russian novelist. <laughs> and, I that's um, safe to say. I don't, uh, I, you know, I don't, I, I can sometimes, you know, wistfully think, oh, I wish I could, I could have lived in, you know, 1912 uh, in Paris or something, but I never think to myself, I want to live in 1865 St. Petersburg. So, <laughs> <that's>... <laughs> oh my God. Oh, that's great. Well, Kevin, thanks for taking the time to talk today. I really enjoyed this. Great, Cody. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That was my conversation with Kevin Birmingham. Thanks for listening. So I, you know, I think this, you, you just listened to it, but I found Kevin super fun to listen to. He uh, definitely has that ability to speak in paragraphs or even in, you know, full fucking essays. Uh, and he did ask to keep the final conversation to about 45 minutes, and I obliged as best I could. I usually do keep my, my conversations for this podcast pretty lightly edited, but uh, there were a few parts here that I took out. Mostly they were they were more personal stuff. So. Kevin was clearly more inclined to talk about the substantive points of Dostoevsky's life and work rather than retailing facts about himself. Uh, I did uh, open our conversation by telling Kevin that, in fact, he was the person on the planet who made me feel the stupidest. Um, the reason for this, I told him, was, was that when I met him, it was the first time I was meeting a, a real adult, a successful author, author no less, as a peer and you know when you meet like your professor it's like okay of course they're way above me that's part of the social structure but this for me was really different and so the first time I was really aware of the gap between me and the people who are really out there you know doing big things was was when I met Kevin and I'm not sure he knew exactly what to make of this uh, but uh, you know he was very gracious and at any rate, I, I loved all his responses to the stuff on Dostoevsky. So I made sure the conversation centered around that. Uh, I definitely had a lot of fun. If you did like this episode, I recommend checking out my previous interview with uh, Luke Menand. And if you do feel you're getting from something from the show, uh, please consider subscribing uh, to my Substack newsletter. That is codycommerce.substack.com. You can also give the show a five-star rating on iTunes. That actually helps a ton as it's one of the biggest factors podcast platforms consider when bringing the show to a new audience. So yeah, uh, giving a rating or subscribing anywhere you're listening on uh, makes a big difference for, for the show. So thank you for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Cognitive Revolution.